Welcome, 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 welcome back to the New York Mystery Machine. New, uh, new, uh, uh, I, I don't know why I panicked suddenly. Uh, uh, Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. <laughs> I'm fine. You're fine. I'm not even going to re-record that. We're going to keep that keep- as <laughs> is. I think it's really important for the listeners to, to, know, to, to know how frazzled that I am. was. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. I We've know. had a tremendous couple of weeks. Yeah. Lots of lots of ghost things. Lots of um... you got. I have to say this. It's so it's, it's not embarrassing. I'm proud of it. This pod. I have three podcasts. This is my third podcast. I have the Talk Back with Adam Mace. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. I have Turnbuckle Podcast, like, hosted res- by, by Sam McKelvey. Rate and review. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. And I have this tremendous podcast, New York Mystery Machine. Ditto. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. Um, and this is part of the Adam Mace Radio Network. Maybe which is what I'm calling it until you come up with a different name. Um, and this is like quickly become the more most successful of all three in only like four weeks so it's 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 the tammany hall slogan that i fucked up it's tammany hall but for ghosts exactly <laughs> you guys get that you guys get that right i think we explained it in an episode you should i mean i don't think we we explained the first episode i think i don't know the tammany hall machine political machine like the new york political machine the one that like we're not talking down to you we're talking up to you right <laughs> yep the, the political <laughs> machine known as Tammany Hall, right. led by the corrupt. notorious, uh, what's his face, Boss Hog. That's not him. That's those 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 Boss those. Tweed. Boss Tweed. <laughs> Boss. Who's Boss Hog? The 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 the, the, the two guys in the in the, <laughs> the, the Boss Hog, Dukes of Hazard. That's it. Never saw a Dukes of those, Hazard. Those 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 Dukes of Hazard boys. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't think I've ever seen. But I just know the character's name, Boss Hog. Boss and Hog. honestly, I know that because Seth Meyers made a joke about it this week, and that's why it's on my brain. <laughs> you guys, if, I've if had. Adam sounds like he's on speed. I had so much coffee, <laughs> and today we're recording a few episodes. We don't right. have to, we don't have to bullshit you. Right. You're, you're smart listeners. Um, we're recording a few episodes today, and it's. It's hot, and I spent all night and all morning researching and putting together um, two of my episodes, mm-hmm. and um, I I drank a lot of coffee this morning, and I'm at that point where my body's tired, but my brain yeah. is like... Bah, 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 bah. Yeah, Adam's shutting down as we speak. <laughs> I have a plate full of apples and peanut butter and yeah. some water, and we're going to make it somehow, some way. Christina... What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to go treasure hunting. Oh, I love the treasure. treasure. I can't wait. And this is the treasure of the infamous 1930s mobster, Dutch Schultz. If he's so infamous, why don't I know him? It's a good question. Mm. How many mobsters can you name? Like two. Okay, well, that's why, because you just don't know enough about the mob. And the only ones I know are like from Chicago, apparently. I was going to say like but Al Capone, is that one? Yeah. Yep, yep. There you go. Um... But yeah, he's one of the most infamous mobsters. Um, and this this treasure is still out there, folks, at least theoretically, because it's gone unfound and unclaimed as of this recording for 86 years. Um, and we can talk about why people are pretty damn sure that it's still out there. Um, but before we go tearing up New York State to look for literal buried gold, I think it's important to dig into... Get, get it? Get it? Dig... Oh, because it's buried treasure. Yeah, yeah. Into the era's history and the and the ways that Dutch Schultz made this fortune. And I'll tell you up front why. The few clues we have as to the possible location of this fortune are tied up in the history and the politics of the era as much as it is in the biography of Dutch Schultz. And it's fun. There's that too. So let me get myself organized here. 
I got, we love fun. I got some exhibits. Oh, she printed out news articles. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Christina and I are very different storytellers. I am the person who has a thousand screens open on my computer and I like click around my screens to get to what I need to say. And Christina has like a thousand <laughs> pages of notes with like markings on them, diagrams mm-hmm. and what's not. What's not. Uh, help if I can. Okay. It's not even that interesting. She what found I'm it. For, but I like it. Because Again, I could edit this out, but I'm not going to. Yeah, I feel no. that the inner workings of the mystery machine, the New York Need mystery machine. Revealed. I can't say the mystery machine. That's copyrighted. But the New oh, York mystery right. machine is not. Um, I feel like the inner workings of it is nothing but um, transparent. Yep. <laughs> We're going to leave that in, too, because I don't know that that was a sentence. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go the origin story of dutch schultz Huzzah! dutch schultz was born arthur s flagenheimer no it's not great name great super name. great name and he changed it and he fucking changed what it like an idiot on a fool's journey he was born august 1st 1901 in new york city to german jewish immigrant parents herman and emma flagenheimer he lived in Yorkville near East 91st Street on 2nd Avenue for part of his childhood before he eventually moves with his family and settles in the Bronx. By the time the 1910 census rolls around, it's just Arthur, his mom, and his little sister living together in the Bronx at 454 East 169th Street. Herman, the father, is already out of the picture. So, early 1900s New York. What do you know about immigrant life in early 1900s New York, Adam? Well, it's pretty shitty. It's pretty shitty. I mean, then again, immigrant life in contemporary New York's pretty shitty too. Yep. But, um, it's pretty shitty. Uh, most immigrants are are trying to define their own little communities around New York, mm-hmm. whether it be the Italian community settling in in either uh, you know East Williamsburg or or the Lower East Side, uh, the Jewish community in the, in the Lower East Side uh, towards mm-hmm. you know closer to where where all the tenements are set up. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's kind of find their spot. Yep. Yeah, um, and that's you know in part why I think we start out our story in what is what is today Yorkville, right? That was a very heavily German area. And where well. is Yorkville? Just geographically, um, around the ninety first Street, eighty sixth Street, that sort of neck of the woods area, east east side. Sure, sure. Just to situate us. Just to situate us, um, and yeah. So for most immigrants at the time, this this meant poverty, living in tenements, unsafe working conditions, disease. And generally struggling to uh, make ends meet. If you want to think about some of the major um, publications of the area, this is, you know, when photographs uh, become part of the series, How the Other Half Lives, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that really raises the awareness around the living and working conditions of the immigrant and working classes in New York. For those who don't know, How the Other Half Lives was um, a a photo journal by Jacob Reese. And um, it was really vital because for we forget in living in the age of social media that, you know, people didn't know how other people lived if you mm-hmm. didn't live with yeah. those people. And so Jacob Reese, um, basically, it, it's a it's a, an incredible piece of work that really covers the slums of New York City mm-hmm. in the 1880s. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about it, too, I think it's true even today, even with social media, right? Like how often do we... You know, out of sight, out of mind. If you want to think about the growing homeless population oh my gosh, in New yeah. York, um, so this is this is the the living conditions that we're talking about. This is also the era of wait for it, Tammany Hall, but for ghosts, but for ghosts, not for ghosts. Oh, uh, you know, it could be both. 
so again, this is the corrupt Democrat political machine that controlled New York City Hold on. for decades. Hold on. You mean me. <laughs> Drag our listeners through what Tammany Hall was at the top of this episode, only for you to actually have it embedded into your episode? Yes. Now should I cut that out? No. <laughs> They're going to keep it in? I want you to keep it in. I think... I think- I think this is the episode where we go off the rails, and I think that's fine. This is where we lose our listeners. This is where everyone leaves. This is where they all leave. (laughs) So, right, Tammany Hall, you all now very clearly know what it is. This is the era we're talking about. Eventually, Arthur drops out of school to work some jobs to support his family. Uh, For example, he was briefly a roofer, and he also had a job in printing as a theater impressman. And why I think that's kind of fun is that even in 1930, when he's very much already a major mobster, I don't know if you can see because it printed out really small, Adam, but if you look at this 1930 census record, uh, Arthur Flagenheimer, as he's still listed, uh, is listing himself as a printer, which I just think is funny. And, and with a better last name. Such a better last name. So young Arthur Flagenheimer came to take note that some of the kids in the youth gangs around the city uh, had nicer clothes, and they had money, and he did not. So Arthur gets involved with one of these gangs, and he begins burglarizing places. He steals packages, he breaks into people's homes, he shoplifts, you know, the usual. But he gets caught, and on December 12th, 1919, at the age of, everyone says 17, but by my math, which you should never trust my math, that's 18, uh, regardless, he ends up incarcerated. Um, So in 1920, Arthur is listed on the census again as an inmate of New Hampton Reformatory Farms. So what happened was, while he started out at a prison on Blackwell Island, which today is better known as Roosevelt Island, he gave enough trouble that he was sent to do, uh, you know, labor on a farm or a reformatory, uh, because even today, slave labor is technically still legal in the U.S. for the incarcerated. Way to go, America. So while Arthur is in prison, the Volstead Act was passed in 1919, and it comes into effect at midnight on January 17th, 1920. Are you familiar with the Volstead Act, Adam? Actually, no. You you are, even though you don't think you are, because no one calls it this. Oh. The Volstead Act is the act that creates prohibition. Oh, so a really important act. Right. Um, and unlike, most people think that prohibition, you know, that this outlaws drinking. It did not, as most people think, uh, outlaw the drinking of alcohol per se. But rather, it made it illegal to, quote, manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, furnish, or possess any intoxicating liquor, beer and wine included. So you can technically drink alcohol in this period. You just uh, can't legally get your hands on it. Fun story. Nobody obeys this. Uh, This is how we get moonshine and bootlegging and rum running between Canada and the U.S. And perhaps most iconically, the beloved 1920s institution of the speakeasy. Those tucked away, need to know the password to get in, tell them Joe sent you. Almost literal hole-in-the-wall gin joints that sprang up all over the United States and infiltrated every corner of New York City. So you may recall from our Isidore Fink episode. Oh, Isidore Fink. If you haven't listened, you should go listen to. Episode four. Episode four. Um, So you may recall that New York City had an estimated 32,000 speakeasies during Prohibition, at least 5,000 of which were already open for business by 1922. So when Arthur Flagenheimer is released from prison in 1921, there's this entirely new, extremely lucrative business that's emerging, that of the bootlegger and the illegal distiller and the disseminator of alcohol. And this is the world that Arthur wants to enter. Uh, Now to the name change. Uh, Arthur's 
gangster friends apparently thought that Arthur Flakenheimer wasn't going to cut it anymore because he wasn't a kid anymore. He was now a five foot seven, 19 year old who looked like, as described once by a chorus girl, quote, Bing Crosby with his face bashed in, unquote. There it is. Which I think is a terrible but terrific way to describe someone. So Arthur takes on the name Dutch Schultz, possibly after the name of a gangster from a Bronx ring that had been crushed by the police prior to World War I. So now Arthur Flagenheimer, Dutch Schultz, uh, gets, a, gets a job working as a driver of illegal hooch for the famed and infamous Jewish mobster Arnold Rothstein. And through this work, Dutch connects with Charles Luciano, born Salvatore Lucania in oh. Sicily, but he's better known as Lucky Luciano. You oh may boy. have heard of Lucky Luciano. And all this to say that Dutch is learning the mafia trade from the best of the very best. He's making connections and he's also making enemies. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> Eventually, Dutch gets a reputation for real violence, too. And we're not going to get into it because it is hella gruesome. Um, but suffice to say, Dutch has a real knack for hurting and torturing people. And he ends up the bouncer as a result for Joe, Joey Noe? Joey Noe? Joey Noe? Joey Noe's, I don't know, bar in the Bronx. Oh, boy. It's spelled N-O-E. I feel like it's probably Joe No or Joey Noe, but I can't decide which it is. Um, and the two come to go into business together in 1928, opening a series of speakeasies throughout the Bronx and continuing to distribute beer as well. Um, and this comes to earn Dutch the moniker Beer Baron of the Bronx, the triple B. No one calls him that, just the Beer Baron of the Bronx. Um it seems that Dutch had a, a really unique business and marketing model for this. What he would do is he would go up to a bar and say to the owner, buy all the beer from, for, for your speakeasy from me, or I'll bash your face in. And it was highly effective. Well, that sounds... You know, no one a, wanted a broken face. As effective as you can be. Um, and per an article that Dutch's personal lawyer would eventually write up some years after, spoiler, Dutch's death, um, the speakeasy that uh, Dutch started with Joe was called the Hub Social Club, but was, quote, called by its intimates, Tub of Blood. There was good reason, for few joints ever saw more murders. There must have been two dozen men and some girls knocked off there, and their bodies were later found in the gutter or the Harlem River. So, you know, we are talking about a someone who is brutal in his dealings he's also a good businessman and dutch decides to expand the beer empire eventually taking over the illegal liquor game in harlem as well as the bronx other things that are important to know for this story lucky luciano manages to convince the major rival gangs in new york city to work together sort of as a collective known as the syndicate Okay. Now, this syndicate comes to carve up New York City amongst themselves, the idea being that as long as you stay in your territory, there aren't any problems between the factions. And this is how we get organized crime as we know it into families, right? So you probably heard a bunch of these, right? Eastern Queens and Brooklyn goes to the Gambino family. Yeah. The Profacci and Bonanno family split up the rest of Brooklyn. Most of Manhattan goes to the, the Genovese family, and the Lucchese family gets a chunk of the Bronx while Swaz of the Bronx and Harlem go to Dutch. So he's a major player. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, there w there's a, a man named Stanley Grouso, who's 104 year old, and is the last surviving member of Dutch's gang. Uh, and he was interviewed for this fabulous uh, PBS documentary that's part of their uh, series, uh, Secrets of the Dead. And he says, 
In our days, you could step on anybody you want because there were no mobs. Everybody was for themselves. There wasn't such a thing as a godfather. There were five families. There were no godfathers. That's what the Federals wanted people to believe. So they can whack the five families, make them think they were gangsters. And they were only, only businessmen, which, you know, take with a grain of salt. Regardless, 1933 rolls around. And the bootlegging industry dies because Volstead Act is repealed and prohibition ends. Mm. So what's a gangster to do? What's it to do? You start taking over the numbers racket. Okay. What's that? The numbers racket is an illegal lottery system. So here's how it works. You buy a policy slip, i.e. a lottery ticket, and it has a three-digit number on it. Runners collect the slips and the money, and if your number is hit, i.e. you're selected, then you get a cash prize. And remember, this is 1933. This is the Great Depression. So even something like $10 or $20 is big money. Yeah. Um, and someone who runs one of these rackets, who has a bank, remember these are policy slips, so like they're playing on terminology. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun. Um, the person running the racket could potentially make a profit of $60,000 a week. Now, apparently, a lot of gangsters turned up their nose at this type of industry, but not Dutch. Dutch goes all in. And one of his biggest roadblocks is that in Harlem, there is already a very large racket system, and the person running it resists him. And this is an African-American woman named Stephanie St. Clair, who is fabulously wealthy, incredibly rich. She has four rights back. And yes. So this starts like, 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 you know, gangster wars in Harlem over the numbers racket. Uh her men have, have revolvers. Dutch's men has Tommy guns. So definitely she is out, outgunned. And eventually she's even incarcerated, thus ending the war. And Dutch rolls on in, takes over the Harlem numbers game fully. Oof. This is how he makes the big money. Prohibition was nice. He made a good chunk. He was a big, big deal. The numbers racket is where the money is. Okay. At this time... Thomas Dewey, a lawyer for the government. Yes, that Dewey. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, Adam. You're saying, you remember the one that ran for president in 44 and 48? I was looking at That's Dewey. What was so famous about him? There wasn't, a, there wasn't a, a famous headline that said that he won the presidency when he didn't win it, right? Nope, never heard of that. Not him. Not him. Oh, boy. Dewey begins closing in on Dutch, and he indicts Dutch for federal tax evasion in 33. And this is important. Uh, because, because he surrenders himself upstate, this means his tax evasion trial is also upstate and it's okay. being in Syracuse. And this is important because, and we'll get to this in a moment, but but Dutch and many other gangsters like like the upstate area. They like the Catskills. There's a lot of places to hide in the Catskills. Well, it's the Catskills. So, you know, there's, you know, you can, yeah. There are places to hide. It's not a city. There. It's, right. you know, there's space. And there's lots of space. There's lots of mountains. There's lots of, you know, forested areas. Um, so... Part of the problem is everybody, everybody knows him around Syracuse because he's always going up there. Um, and as a result, no one's willing to convict him. And it the trial ends in a hung jury. Now, this means that another trial is scheduled pretty quickly thereafter. And yeah. Dutch is very smart. He goes up to the town, Malone, New York, a week before the trial. And he spends a week lavishing everybody with money, buying dinners, paying debts. Which meant that come jury selection for the trial, everybody's been wined and dined by Dutch. Yeah, he had people in his pocket. And there's nobody willing to condemn him, so he's acquitted. That's how it happened. Now, uh, you know, this is deeply upsetting to the mayor of New York, um, Fiorello La Guardia, who's like not having it. 
Um, and he is so enraged by the flagrant bribery that's gone down at this second tax evasion trial that he has a warrant out on Dutch that he, sh- that he Dutch, should be arrested on site if he enters New York State. So essentially, Dutch has to sh- set up shop in Elsewhere. New York. Um, in New Jersey. Jersey. Everything's legal in New Jersey. <laughs> Um, this is a New York podcast. Get the Jersey crap out of here. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. <laughs> um, so Dutch is not thrilled with how he's being pursued by Dewey. I had a meeting of the syndicate. Remember the, the conglomeration? The conglomerate. Of the, yeah. Dutch seeks approval from the other crime families to, quote, take care of Dewey, unquote. Uh-oh. And the other crime families say, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. The moment you go after someone who's so high profile in the government, we're going to have all the federals descending upon us and we're all going to get screwed over. Absolutely not. Stop that. And Dutch flips the fuck out and says, if you're not going to take care of it, I'll take care of it myself. Oh, snap, Dutch. Well, the syndicate, after he left, has a second clandestine meeting and agree that Dutch was a live wire that needs to be dealt with. Oh, my gosh. There's something happening. So. We've already established he set up shop in Newark, and he does business in the back of a place called the Palace Chop House, which if that is not the most 1930s name ever, I don't know what. We're going to the Palace Chop, chop house. house. We'll get us some steaks. Oh, my God. Chop you and up. And then we'll, uh, we'll make some decisions after. <laughs> On October 23rd, 1935, Dutch and four men are doing business at the back of the Palace Chop House. And Dutch excuses himself to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Just that sentence. Dutch and four men are doing business in the back of the palace chop house. <laughs> and when Dutch goes to the bathroom, in walk two men, Charles the Bug Workman and Mendy Weiss. Oh, his nickname's The Bug? The Bug. And so these two men tell the bartender to stay quiet. They head to the back, see Dutch isn't at the table, and they go to the washroom. And there, they shoot Dutch. And then they shoot the rest of the guys at the table, including... Uh, Dutch's bodyguard, Lulu Rosencrantz. Again, the names are just top notch. Lulu Rosencrantz. Top notch names. Hey, Lulu. It's also uh, important to mention that they shot Dutch purposefully with rusty bullets. Oh, shit. The idea being that just in case the shots don't kill them, the rust. The rust will. Yo. And so Dutch stumbles out of the bathroom, profusely bleeding, and collapses on the table. It's worth noting that at the on the same night, another hit goes down on another Schultz henchman named Marty Crompier, um, who survives. But you can tell that this is like a major hit on the, the Schultz gang. Yeah. Dutch doesn't die right away, though. Um, oh, he would sucks. come to yeah. he has the rust. Yeah. He languishes in a hospital for another day. Stand by. What do you do to make a rusty? Do you just like... I don't know. Is it intentionally rusty bullets? That's how I understand it, yeah. So they rusted the they bullets. They rusted some bullets, and we're like, now we'll put them I've really never heard about that, but like this, the idea of that being a, a way of murdering someone is very proficient. Yes. It's kind of brilliant. And I'll say, too, that there's a reason why. I, I like the term proficient because it's revealed, you know, I don't know how much later, that what the syndicate did is they turned to, and this is a great name as well, Murder Incorporated, which murder. Yep. Yep. Adam is smiling because that doesn't sound like a real thing. Well, not even that. It's like, oh, you guys don't care that people know that you exist. Right. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Murder Incorporated. It's a come to Murder Incorporated where we murder. Tell me all about for ghosts at Murder Incorporated. Murder Incorporated is a notorious. Guess what they do, Adam? What, what does Murder Incorporated do? I assume like they are really invested in marshmallow making. Yes. Yes. Or, Investment bankers. Or murder. It's actually murder. 
little known fact. It's murder. It's murder. Because it's called Murder (laughs) Incorporated. They are a Brooklyn mob of skilled assassins. So they've they've done this before and they've thought this through. Yeah, it's literally the part of their job. It's part of their their company name. Yeah. If they were if they were bad at murder, like they wouldn't be able to hold that name. Yeah. I think anytime you have something in your name that is the thing that you do, you have to be like the best at it. Right. I have a whole thing about that when like with, with like food with food restaurants when they have like best in the name. Uh, I have a really like a very 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 big feeling about that. And so, if murder is in the name, you got to be the you best. You got to be good at murder. Well, they are. They thought of rusty bullets. So. Dutch ends up languishing in the hospital for another day. And during that time, he begins to speak, rambling in this sort of fevered state because of that peritonitis from the rusty bullets. And the authorities figure in this hallucinatory state he's having, maybe he'll spill information. So they get a court stenog to stay by his bed until he dies. And they record every one of his last words. Spoiler alert, they don't really pan out the way the cops were hoping to. They, you know, that doesn't lead to like major arrests of or course, crime busting. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. But it's important. And on, and on October 24th, 1935, Dutch Schultz died. Are you ready for the treasure? Yeah. Let's take a break first. Ah! wondering didn't christina say the story was about buried treasure because i don't remember hearing it yeah before the break you're like you want to know about the treasure and i was like (laughs) yes i want to know about the treasure and then like literally you're like i'm doing this whole story about treasure and literally you have not mentioned treasure once and i'm like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) that's correct well it is still about treasure so here's here's the rumor it's rumored that sometime in the 30s dutch goes upstate new york and buries an enormous sum of money somewhere in the woods The exact when and the with whom is what is unknown, and the story changes a little bit depending on who tells it. But first, why would he even bury money? That seems like a ridiculous thing to do. Or does it? Does that seem it seemed ridiculous to me, but And what's the year? It's the it's This is the thirties. It's the thirties. So I mean, I don't know. You can't put it in a bank. Well, that's exactly it. A lot of people at this time are very wary of banks because of the stock market crash. Exactly. So So it's actually funny because at this time, there are companies that are literally selling these steel black boxes with the intention that you buy it, put your money in it, and and bury bury it it someplace. So it's it's a thing. Um, And not to mention, Dutch was no fool. He knew Dewey was after him. He's already been, you know, uh, indicted for tax evasion. He doesn't want his money going to the government or being taken. So bearing money ensures that just in case he goes away for a while, when he gets out, the fortune is still there for him. And also, we know that he's got one of these boxes because according to a 1939 Collier Magazine article, Richard Dixie Davis, one of Dutch's lawyers, detailed that he saw this box and he knew that Dutch had buried it. Here's what he wrote. The Dutchman kept his money in cash for his old bank accounts in phony names had fallen into the hands of the income tax men. One night I was in his room and on the table he had a big steel box about three feet long, two feet wide. What's that? I asked to keep my money in, he said. I never saw that box again. His wife and two children were left in very modest circumstances. I feel certain he sneaked out one night and buried that box somewhere. 
I've got a couple hunches myself and hope to give it a try someday. So most people think that this box would have held $1,000 bills, gold coins, because Dutch, like other gangsters, liked using gold coins for payments because it's you can melt them down and they're hard to trace. Yeah, gold is still like, if you use gold, it's, it's always going to be gold. Right, everybody loves gold. Yeah. Um, there's also speculation that there might be diamonds from jewelry. He seemed to have connections to a jewel thief. And again, once you remove the diamond from jewelry, it's impossible to trace. Sure. Um, and also Liberty Bonds. Now, Liberty Bonds are World War One war bonds, which helped pay for World War One and the U.S. Yeah, Army. Yeah. Um, and this last bit is why people are confident no one's found it yet. Because they are government war bonds, you can track They're registered. They're yeah, registered. Yeah. You know when they've been cashed. And no one has cashed out on his war bonds. Interesting. So the idea is that they're out there just waiting to be cashed in. Um, and the assumption is like, if you come across them, why would you just like, you know, well, that's nice. I'm never going to get that money. So that's, that's why people feel pretty certain about this. And do we know where this could be? We're getting to it. Oh, we're getting to it. I'm jumping ahead of the story. But first I'm just going to put a little carrot on the stick and say the estimated contents of this box would today be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 million. Christina, get your shovel. Yeah. So where is it? You ask. I ask. We don't know, but there are some potential clues. I love it. So, for a long time, folks puzzled over Dutch's last words, that hallucinatory monologue that the Stenog captured. They were published in full in the New York Times on October 26, 1935. And I got them here. I can't wait. It's printed on the paper. It's printed on the paper. So, um, what we'll do is first, just, just have, a, have a skim at it, Adam. Just, you know, start, start reading it and tell me what your first impressions are. Um, from the top? Yeah. Um, okay, um, who shot you? The boss himself. He did? Yes, I don't know. What did he shoot you for? I showed him boss. Did you hear him meet me? An appointment? Appeal stuck? All right, mother. <laughs> That's like a quick weird turn. Was it the boss shot you? Who shot me? No one. We will help you. Will you get me up? Okay. I won't be such a big creep. Oh, mama, I can't go through with it, please. Oh, and then he clips me. Come on, cut that out. We don't owe a nickel. Hold it. Instead, hold it against him. I am a pretty good pretzler, Winifred, Department of Justice. I even got it from the department. Sir, please stop it. Say, listen, the last night, don't holler. What are your impressions so far? This is just like a, a, a rambling. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like he just doesn't know what's happening. It memories are kind of coming in and out at the same time. Like yes. he he remembers being shot, then not being shot. Who shot, then not being shot. Calling from his for his mother. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot happening in there. There's a lot happening. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that he's in a fevered state. We we don't you know. There's a lot of people who say we can't take any of this worth anything. But there are a couple of lines that people zero in on. Um, and so I I have bet those are the ones that are highlighted. The ones that are sheet. highlighted? <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, would you like to read them? I, I'm going to read this. Here I go. From the highlight, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the question. Or from, just the highlighted parts. Yeah. So it starts with a question from the um, sergeant. How many? 2,000. Come on. Get some. I bet I probably should do voices, right? To, to, oh, yeah. The, we, the audience probably needs voices. Some voices. How many? 2,000. Come on. 
Get some money in that treasury. We need it. Come on, please get it. I can't tell you to. That is not what you have in the books. If that ain't the payoff, please crack down on his friends and Hitler's commander. I am sore. I am going up. And I am going to give you honey if I can. Mother is the best bet and don't let Satan draw you too fast. What did the big yellow shoot you for? Him, John, over a million, five million dollars. Uh-oh. Um, then he says, That is, what caused the trouble? Look, please help me get up. If you do this, you can go on and jump right here in the lake. I want to pay. Let them leave me alone. So those are the... Thank you, Adam. I also really appreciate how um, Dutch Schultz a.k.a. Arthur Flagenheimer went real southern towards the end there. He went, he was like a southern cool guy. Hey, man, <laughs> how you doing? I'm Dutch Schultz. <laughs> is he not southern? His name is Dutch. <laughs> he was born in New York to German-Jewish immigrant parents. I know that, but like his name is Dutch. I know, he should be southern. Also, is it too late to start naming your kids Dutch? Because what a fun name. Do it. Dutch. I don't Dutch. have a kid to name, but if I did, maybe Dutch. Dutch. Absolutely Dutch. Not Dutch. Definitely not Dutch. <laughs> oh. um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you thought we'd gotten better over the course of this episode. Yeah, <clears throat> um, so yeah, so these are some of the lines that people really zero in on when they're thinking about what does this all mean? So for example, um, they say that let me find it. The, you know, 2000, come on, get some money in that treasury. We need it. That's him thinking about burying it the treasure the treasure um you know i am sore and i'm going to give up and i'm going to give you honey if i can people say that's like rhyming slang honey money, money. um mother is the best bet and don't let satan draw you too fast now that sounds like a hot nonsense much of this does um but there is a place upstate new york around phoenicia which is where dutch often spent a lot of his time um, that is called, uh, that, that is Devil's Face. It's called Devil's Face. And so they're saying that perhaps that has something to do with the location as well. So yeah, the fact that this, this sort of triangulates it around the area of Phoenicia and Boyceville is important because there are a lot of ruins in that area that seem to be related to prohibition illegal activity and we know that dutch had distilleries upstate new york we know that you know this was a great way for people to bring alcohol down from canada into new york this is where um dutch had operations so that he could make the hooch in upstate new york and then at night have like fleets of trucks to bring it into new york city sure um and like i said there are these remains all around there there's also a map oh snap do you draw it no. Oh. But, and, and this is something that's driving me a bit insane. Um, there's this book uh, that's called Dutch Schultz and His Lost Catskills Treasure by Sullivan County historian John Conway. And it's on back order, so at the time of this recording, I don't have it yet. Maybe it's explained there. What I can't figure out is where this map first emerges. Yeah, but to ask you, like, where does the map come from? How the do we story get this? goes that it was drawn by or for Lulu Rosencrantz. Lulu. That, that bodyguard that is there that night right um so it's it said that this might be by him or marty crumpier the other guy that was hit but survived um and that you know so i where how that first emerges though i don't know um so this is the map adam's looking at it we'll post it um and 
That handwriting looks strangely like some of my handwriting on the body. Did you do this? <laughs> it looks some of it looks like my handwriting. Like when I'm writing like in all caps, it kind of looks that way. <laughs> and I'm gonna pull up on the Google Maps. The Google Maps. An area around the- Phoenicia that people say might line up with this. And I'll, sure. you can you can have a look. So uh, here is near Phoenicia, and you can see this is Esopus Creek, and it sort of lines up with that map. The creek, I mean, it looks very much... Exactly, right? Yeah. So there's this wonderful documentary on PBS that I mentioned already called Gangster's Gold. It's part of the Secrets of the Dead uh, series. And there they follow some treasure hunters who are on, on the hunt for this treasure. And one of the sets is using this this particular map a couple of them actually i think um and you'll see on this map that there are some some landmarks there's a pine grove in the middle there's an old railroad track um there's an old stone foundation there's something labeled a still and they find these they find these there's a still near the water which is makes sense because if you're going to have a distillery you're going to want to be near fresh water so, so that you can, can distill you it you can distill it um in the middle of these pine groves uh and there are these old uh uh, stone foundations near like a cave system and tunnels there's all of this um so there's there's a real chance that this you know they've found the rough location if this map is genuine and does x mark the spot x marks the spot and this will be on the social media so you guys check it out this way you too can go try to find that schultz i mean we're gonna go where i i really you know if not for the fact that I don't drive, and do you drive, Adam? Notoriously, no. I do not drive. Right. So, other if not for the fact that neither of us drive, someone will drive us, and then for our Patreon, you'll see me and Christina with shovels. I was going to say, I really want to like record on location. Oh my! This God. is where Adam and Christina get lost in the woods and die. This is yeah. This is like oh, where did they go? Well, we, they told us on the podcast that they were going to go to this find this buried treasure. <laughs> Never we pro- came back. We probably should have called someone. <laughs> Let them know. You can, like, ping them where we are on the GPS. Um, there's another possible area that okay. this may be. Um, so on this documentary, uh, one of these people that's on the hunt for the treasure uh, encounters a man who lives upstate and who remembers his father telling stories that he eventually realizes were actually stories about when his dad did some strong arming for Dutch. And there are even pictures in the family albums of a card the family had that according to family legend, is what he used when he would go do his work for Dutch. And then there's this random picture of a nothingish creek in the 30s. It's called Stony Clove Creek. Um, and it's nearby this other area, a few number of miles away, but still in the general vicinity. And it's this random picture of it. And it's overgrown. And there's this car, the one that we just mentioned, parked in the bushes. Why? At the time, people aren't just wasting film you know, it's expensive. It's expensive to develop. So why have this sort of horrible picture? Mm. The private investigator says this must be somewhere near where the treasure is buried. Oh, okay. That this is some sort of, you know, mnemonic device or, or evidence for whoever is going back to collect it of where it might be. And so the private investigator who's in contact with this guy whose father is the driver, whatever. Um, this private investigator... Uh, takes the picture and contacts two professional treasure hunters. Yes, that's the career you two can have. Uh, who have been looking for Schultz's treasure. Where's and these treasure name? hunters are named Steve Zazulik and Ryan Fazikas, which, again, great names all around. And these two hunters go off to try to locate the area. 
And they scan the ground, the ground-penetrating radar, and it goes off. Oh, snap. And they find a 1903 Liberty Head Gold Eagle. Now, that's a $10 gold coin used throughout the Prohibition era. Who knows? Might be part of the treasure, may not be. It was really close to a creek. One concern is, has the box, like, through erosion gotten loose from its place and is now just... Everything is... Everything's gone or spilled apart or who knows what. But one thing that wouldn't, wouldn't be gone is the gold. Wouldn't be gone is the gold. So that's where we are. Um, somewhere out there, they think there is still this treasure. Somewhere in the Catskills. Now, that means there are a lot of places throughout the Catskills this could, this could be. There's also no saying, I think, that Dutch only picked one place, right? He's got a lot of money. Yeah. There's no saying he said, I'm going to put all of, my, all of my eggs in this one basket and bury this basket right here. I yeah. hope no one else comes across it. Maybe maybe there are multiple ones. Um, and there are lots of places in the Catskills with Dutch's fingerprints, metaphorically speaking. Uh, so, for example, there's a place that's called Dutch's Spirits. It's a distillery. It's opened above an underground network of tunnels that is said to have been created by Dutch himself for his moonshine business. Um, and all these tunnels would have provided easy escape during raids. Uh, so you can go visit that distillery. And uh, yeah, bring bring some ground penetrating radar, some metal detectors. I don't know if that that I, w- I wish I was more optimistic. I don't think it exists mm. um, because I'm assuming all the places that you've shown me have already been looked at. It looks like a small area on the map. It is a par- I, for- I have it written down. But this is from it's the- a huge amount of space. But this is from the 30s till now. Are we telling us that people in between the 30s and now have not all tried to find this treasure? Right. Yeah. Was he was he someone who like loved chaos and just wanted people to look for his that's a vindictive. Would kind of love that. He was like, I just want people to look for my treasures and exist. You know, I don't know, but I think Do you think it exists? I guess is the question I'm asking you, as someone who's spent some time with this. It's like the Schrodinger's cat of treasure hunting. Well, sure. Because I feel like on the one hand, I don't know that it ever existed. I'm not convinced he ever even buried anything. On the other hand, the idea of him having money when he gets out of jail, should he have gone away for tax evasion, that makes a lot of sense to me. It also makes sense to me that it would be buried in multiple places. Like why, like, like I said, why would you just count on the fact that this is the one spot no one will ever find it or that while you're away, like you're not betrayed by one of your own gang? Yeah, I, I think there's sound cause for it. Mm-hmm. There's reasoning for it. It's the 30s. There's no trust in the banks. Even if there is trust in the banks, um, Money outside the bank is still more safe, you know, Um, and so I I guess in my theorizing, it's it's it makes sense for him to bury the treasure, whether or not it was ever buried is one piece of it. And again, we're and was his hopes that someone else would find it or was it hopes that he would find it himself? Like, you know, was it was it buried for his own? And if that's the case, then it's. It's done its purpose, right? Because yeah. he's long gone and no one's gotten it because the bonds haven't been right. registered. I think that's the best part about this story, to mm-hmm. be honest with you, is that we know that no one has it. If mm-hmm. it does exist, no one has gotten it because yeah. it's stupid to not cash on those bonds. Right. That's the thing. And that's why people are, and that's why people are like, no matter what, there's somewhere out there at the very least, buried or not, there are these liberty bonds. They've never been They're just hanging out. From the 30s. Um, which is pr- 
probably, you know, I'm not, I'm sure you can it's do the research. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you can do the research and, and post it on our social media of how much it'd be, how much his treasure would be. You, you said how much it, the, the, all the treasure as a whole, as a whole, would be worth in the ballpark of like 150 million individual parts of the treasure, depending on which part you're looking at, tend to be in like the seven to eight million range. I mean, if anyone has theories on this, you yeah, know, you know what to do. If you went, uh, if you went to, you know, the cat skills and brought your your metal detectors, let us know. Yeah, um, you know, drop us some some info on our on our social media at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram and at NY Mysteries on the Twitter or at NY Mystery Machine on Facebook. I keep plugging the Facebook, but you know, it's there. I'm on Facebook still. Me too. I so mean, that it's not means cool. other people are. It's certainly not cool. It's effective and efficient. As as social media should be. It's a, that was purpose. It's a selling selling point um, in social media right there. And more than that, we love if you also you feel free to to write us a review on on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and put your theories in there as well. You know, we don't we don't mind what you write, but just write something write for it. us. Um, drop us some five stars, and if you you do that uh, at the at the end of August, August will be our first our first um, competition. Ooh. We're gonna pick a we're gonna pick a review out of the hat. Talk about it on the show, get your contact information, and uh, drop you a prize because prizes are fun and they tie That's us all fun. together. <laughs> um, what a crazy, interesting thing. Buried gangster gold. I don't think it exists. I want it to. I don't think his reporting, that last conversation. Was, I don't think that means anything. I don't think it means anything. I think. Whether or not it's Duchess, I wouldn't be surprised if there are gangster yes. treasure things buried out there for convenience, for safety, because there are all that's these facts. underground tunnels and, and I mean, that's fact. Yeah. There's been there's been so many reports of, of, of gangster um, treasure being buried all uh, across mm-hmm. the country, whether it be in Illinois, yeah. Chicago and New York and in suburbs, just because there was no faith in the banks. Right. So we know that much that regardless of if it's Dutch, you probably can still... Someone in in the in the country can still probably find some buried treasure. I think yeah. buried treasure is very more common than we think it is. Yeah. Um, I think it may not be as worth as much as we, we right. think it is because, you know, if certainly if someone buried dollars in treasure, like hundreds of dollars, mm-hmm. that may not be worth Jack. Because if, if it's a mm. dollar in... Right, I see what you're saying. That's not gained that much. But again, the gold, the bonds, stuff like that, valuable jewels, that's stuff that's going to do it. Well, thanks for taking us on this on this journey, Christina. Anytime. Thanks for coming. As always. Where else was I would where else would I be? We're doing fine. We're doing fine. Um, if you guys again, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you know how to do that. We're back next week, um, and, and throughout the rest of August as well. And boy, is there a doozy for you next week. Oh gosh, next week, you guys you sit sit down. When you're listening yeah. to, which I assume you do. I don't know. Maybe you walking. You, do. you don't get, know them. Get ready. I don't know your life. I don't know your choices. Um, but I've been Adam Mace. I've been Christina Marinelli. Thanks for coming on board the New York Mystery Machine. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>